Hi, folks. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performing at our best when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Kevin Sear. Now, I've been really excited about this conversation. We've been going back and forth on LinkedIn for a while, sort of like, you know, side eyeing each other's stuff, being like, yeah, that, that makes sense to me what you're saying. And, you know, the other one being like, yeah, actually, that makes sense what you're saying. So we're putting our somewhat bald heads together for this episode to figure out what's going on and talk a lot about asymmetric downside risk, about reusable principles of risk management, and really about the interface between crisis and non-crisis situations. Maybe, or maybe we'll come up with something totally different than that. Who knows? That's the beauty of this. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on and welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I've listened to lots of episodes now. I've read your book and it's amazing to me how applicable these principles are across you know, very diverse industries. So Absolutely. I think this, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Absolutely. Do you mind jumping folks in and just giving them a sense of, of who you are and what you do so we can sort of set the stage for this conversation? Sure thing. So I'm an inspector with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. So I'd be like, you know, lieutenant equivalent, maybe down in a, in a police agency type thing, lieutenant captain, something like that. I run the Lower Mainland District Integrated Emergency Response Team. So we're a SWAT team. We've got uh, 63 full-time guys, which puts us one of the bigger teams in North America. We run this year, I think we're about 340 calls this year. We're certainly busy. Wow. One of our, I guess, claims to fame is that for whatever reason, by virtue of our jurisdiction and area and demographics, we do a lot of kidnap for ransom files and we do wow. a lot of hostage rescue. So a lot of times, you know, we call them the Super Bowl type files. You'd be lucky to get one in a career. I think we did five in three weeks earlier this year. It was just, I mean, then that's well, a complete statistical yeah. aberration. Those, you know, when you talk about hostage takings, you talk about kidnap for ransom, the risk is just so acute that it really tests you. It really tests everything. And we've had ones go really well and we've had ones go really bad. And so we've discerned some lessons learned and been able to apply those over time. So I, I would put us, you know, we're, we're a very high functioning team in, in our environment and uh, we kind of just, do this every day, you know, like what would be in some people's their worst day is like, you know, that's, that's Tuesday, you know, we're going to do that again tomorrow kind of thing. Preston Klein, my, my friend and the head of Mission Critical Team Institute is really fond of saying that. He goes, you're looking at somebody who's looking down the barrel of the worst day of their existence and you're like, yep, that's Thursday. Okay. <laughs> and that, that disconnect is like a really interesting piece when it comes to the boundaries and the interfaces between, you know, your team or, or my team or whatever, and the rest of the universe around us. And I imagine that's that's one of the things we'll hit on for this. But let's go back for a second. Okay. So you run the integrated emergency response team. You're one of the folks yeah. that, right? Yeah. We could call and it the SWAT team just for SWAT ease team. of, yeah, that's easy. <laughs> Perfect. All right. So we have the SWAT team. And is this an intact team, right? So these 63 folks, they are selected, they're brought in through a training process, they're standard in there, and then they cycle through for a while. Or is this more of a fluid team where you might bring in different elements depending on what the situation demands? No, so our core group of, we call them assaulters, right? Door kickers, gunfighters. You know, you, some people call them different things. We don't use the gunfighter sure. thing because we our job is to not get in gunfights. And if we get into gunfight, that means we actually maybe didn't succeed as well as we would have hoped. Our vernacular is, is, uh, is assaulters. That comes from the 80s when the SAS uh, came over to train us. Like that's where that verbiage comes from. It's still around today. It's sure. maybe not the best word, but that's what we'll call it. So we've got 63 guys and that's what they do. The onboarding processes, they have to be experienced police officers beforehand. Uh, they have to have three years in. 
they apply. We have about an 80% failure rate through our selection process. So it's a very arduous process. They come on. Total training is, I think, probably about four or five months to become like, you know, the new guy. And then it usually takes a couple of years till they're really firing on all cylinders. Beyond that, we will bring in negotiators. We will bring in like different specialties of our bomb techs or our dog handlers, you know, kind of and build the team as needed. But that 63 guy group is sort of our core group, our day-to-day kind of thing. And you all work together, you train together, you deploy together, you debrief together, you, you go through the whole cycle process. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So it's very consistent. And our longevity on the team, like our retention is through the roof. No one wants mm-hmm. to leave, you know, yeah. and maybe maybe to the point of maybe it's a problem kind of thing. Because some guys that say, you know, when, when you start to get my age, things start hurting a little bit and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you, you don't get faster with time, but then you have more experience. So it's a bit of a there's pros and cons to it, but but yeah, our longevity on the team is is really good. One of the reasons I want to start with that is that, that over the course of the podcast, we explore a lot of different models of how different teams perform under pressure and in crisis. And right away, we're setting up a split between something that's more like a code blue team, a swarm team or something like that, and something like the SWAT team we're operating with here, which is more of an intact team, although there's, there's fluid elements to the edges where different things will sort of attach to it. Now, I would imagine you all also are interfacing with I don't want to call it non-elite teams, but I would call it a, a regular operating team, whether that's in the police force or sort of some other level in that. Am I right about that, that there's also sort of an interface in, in that direction? Yeah, absolutely. We don't generate any of our own work. It's the drug okay. narcotics guys calling us up saying, hey, we got this. It's the homicide detective saying, hey, this guy's going to go do a hit. You need to go arrest him. You know, mm-hmm. It's the patrol officers saying, hey, we've got an armed barricade at this, at this location, or the bank's been robbed and some guy's inside with a gun. We're responding to to all those. So yeah, those are our clients. All right. So those are your clients. And are these more like zero notice events? Like your beeper goes up, whatever the modern technology of a beeper is, goes off. It's not probably a real beeper. You know, it goes off and you can tell how old I am from that comment, but your beeper goes off and like you spin up and you start going. Do you get notice about this? Like, hey, next week we're going to take down whatever, no trade secrets. Sorry if I'm asking weird things. No, so sometimes it's, we do too. We call it planned and reactive. So the plan and calls is, you know, the detective calls me up, hey, we're working this murder file and we've, our surveillance teams are out on this guy. As soon as we locate him, we think it takes a couple of days to put him down somewhere. We want you guys to come in. Great. So now we've got a couple of days to, okay, there's the house. We're going to do our recce's. We're going to, you know, spool everything up versus, you know, my phone could ring at two o'clock this morning and there could be a hostage taken after a domestic violence incident went sure. So we, we, we hit both. It's really interesting to explore the the breadth of that, right? So the difference in how you train and prepare for zero notice events versus planned events is pretty important, right? And we're, we're sort of carving around the edges of what the job of this team is, because that's going to get us into this idea of, all right, well, how do we do it? How do we do it well? And how do we do it really well where people come home to their families afterwards? And that's different than, you know, so these folks that are coming through your pipeline, right? They've probably done a little bit of this work. I'm sure there are planned and unplanned events in the normal police force as well. But I'd imagine that you start training them up pretty quickly once they get in through your pipeline. Is that right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Tell me more. I think the most interesting, and this might be a tension, the most interesting intersection between planned and unplanned events is when you're doing the unplanned emergent reactive call, you know, the hostage taking is you have so much time pressure that you don't have time to have big conversations. You don't have time to plan. So the place you build those skills is on the planned calls. Sure. And I'll give you an example. So 
let's say later this week, we're going to do, you know, the narcotics guys have been working on a kilo level dealer and we're going to go do a search warrant on his house. My guys are going to come in and they're going to say, uh, you know, okay, we looked at, you know, the target package that we got. Here's how we want to, you know, approach this. You know, here's our best avenue of approach. Uh, here's our entry plan. Here's our arrest plan. They're going to go through all their whole plans. Mm. And then I'm going to have a conversation with them about, well, you know, tell me more about why you selected this option. Why didn't we, why are we going in through the front door instead of why don't we just do surveillance on the guy and, and, mm. and arrest him down the street? And they'll say something like, well, because there's three different targets and we have to do them all at the same time. And if we don't know when someone was going to come out, so we can't do a surveillance-based arrest. No, no. And I may say, well, tell me about why, you know, I'm going to ask a whole bunch of sure. questions. In that conversation, we're going to build trust. And I'm going to get an appreciation for their level of professionalism. It's like, I tell you, like 99% of the time I'm blown away. I'm like, wow, these guys know exactly what they're talking about. I wouldn't have even thought to ask that question, but they've come out and offered that they thought of all these things. It's fantastic. You know, maybe one out of a hundred times, I'm like, well, did you think about this? And they go, oh, I forgot. And the way they go and they figure that out. When we then get to the reactive incident, we've surged all that trust. I know how they think. I know they're professionals. So then when they come in and say, hey, we're going to gas the house now, I don't have to, well, have you thought about me? And it's like, yeah, do it. Sure. Like, I, I know how you think. And then we can catch up later. When we started really investing in building that trust amongst our team, it really shrunk our response time in the unplanned events. We became incredibly quick on our reactions because we knew how each other, we, we knew how we thought. And that was by having better conversations during the planned incidents. That's perfect. That's a perfect direction to drive, right? I mean, there are obvious parallels in there in the emergency world when you're thinking about, you know, okay, you can look around the corner and say, this person over here in room three, they're not going down yet, but I know the expected course of their illness is going to take them to a place where I'm going to have to intervene. I'm going to have to put them to sleep and take their airway. Okay. I have a few minutes to set up this plan. And you're talking to your juniors and you're saying, all right, what's your plan for this? Sometimes it's even beyond that. It's like, what would you do if the guy in room three went down right now? How would you approach it? Or sometimes it's, hey, in a couple minutes, we're going to do this. I want you to put your plan together and come back and teach it to me. Right. And they're telling you the plan. You're like, all right, well, did you think about, great, you got first order effects. Did you think about the second and third order effects of your decision? Right. What about the fact that this person here actually has a different physiology in their heart because of this other reason? So you're going to have to plan laterally to this. Right. And, we're really getting in some sense at, at like the inside outside of you of a problem. You and I were talking before we started, I was reading this decision paper from Morgan Stanley's group this morning about risk analysis. And one of the things they were talking about is, do you view a decision as a unique event that has its own characteristics, or do you view it as an instance of a type of events, right? So this, this idea, the outside view, the sort of what Kahneman espouses in some sense, is that you're viewing a decision process as an instance of a series of events, right? And that gives you a better sense of the base rate, a better sense of sort of like what happens on average in these things. To connect all these dots, right? It's a really solid way to teach, especially junior folks to think around the corner is by putting them in these circumstances where you're asking them, what's unique about this situation and how are you going to plan around? You mentioned that as you're doing that, you're doing that all in a slightly different way explicitly to build trust. What's that like? Like, how do you build trust in those conversations? If you're a leader listening to this, what would you want them to do differently about that? This is a trick I had to learn the hard way. So my team used to come in the office. They say they'd brief me on a plan. And I would ask what I call what about questions. You know, 
we want to do a, we would call it a breach and hold. So a breach and hold is they're going to go up to the door, they're going to breach the door, and they're going to assess, see what happened. Maybe they'll take mm-hmm. a step in, maybe they'll pull back, depending on what they see. Okay. And I'll say, well, what, I call them what about questions. What about a surveil and takeaway? Why don't we just wait and surveil and, you know, when he goes to the 7-Eleven, we'll, we'll grab him there kind of thing. Well, what about, you know, a contain and call it? When I ask questions that way, people have no choice but to be, start defending mm-hmm. their course of action and their plan. And not only that, the, the only questions I can ask are things I know to ask, right? So we're, I'm limiting my, my questions to what I know. I started changing how I asked them. And now I ask them, I say, tell me about, tell me about the other options and why you chose this one. Now they're not defending their course of action. They're demonstrating their competence. If you start saying, well, what about this? What about that? You'll notice people are kind of guarded. You know, they don't want to tell you a whole lot because you're just going to pick it apart. Yeah. Hey, man, tell me about what other options you thought of and why you picked this one. Now they get to demonstrate how smart they are and how good they are. And you get to sit there and go, that's fantastic because they're going to mention things you wouldn't have thought to think of or to ask. Plus, if there is a gap, they're probably going to self-discover it. And when they self-discover the error, you don't expend any leadership capital with that. They'll go, oh, I, I forgot to think about the surveillance takeaway. You know, what? let me go look at that option. We'll come right back. You still, you still have the option of saying, well, what about this other thing? If yeah, they sure, still, sure. Maybe they're a newer, a newer guy or something and they just don't know. And so you can still give some guidance, but you save that card. You, you have it in your pocket. You can pull it out later. So it's like such a small change. What about versus tell me about? They both feel like they're open-ended questions, but they're not. What about it's not an open-ended question? Tell me about. Tell me about this. Yeah, but I love that. I'm absolutely using that on my next shift with, my, <laughs> with the team. That, that's, that's incredible. How did you figure that out? I don't know. Believe it or Fair. not, believe it or not, the people I work with are not all easygoing guys. <laughs> They're all type A personalities. You know, everyone's hard chargers. I could tell I was getting defensive reactions yeah. and I needed to find a way around it. Tell me about this. And it just felt more open-ended and it felt like more, you know, like it's just more of an earnest question, you know, would be the, in the like Jocko Willink's all about asking earnest yeah. questions. Right. It's an earnest question. Like, hey man, tell me about this. Like, I want to hear. Because half the times I would be like, well, That's what about a surveil and takeaway? And they give me a really good reason why not to do that. I'm like, now I feel kind of stupid. And the other thing I notice is when you're in charge, questions sound like suggestions. Mm-hmm. So if I say, what about a surveil and takeaway? All of a sudden, he might leave my office and say, guys, the boss wants to do surveil and takeaway. It might be a terrible idea, but you, I always forget, like to me, I'm just, I'm just Kevin. Like that's sure. like, you know, my word doesn't carry anything. No, no, I'm, I'm the sir, I'm the boss. I'm, you know, my word carries more weight than I think. And you need yeah. to be cognizant of this. You need to soften things because yeah. I don't want my question to sound like a suggestion and a suggestion then sounds like an order. You know, well, maybe, right. maybe we should do it this way. Guess what they're going to do? Exactly that. And you have to be really careful when you're in charge. Your words can, can really derail things quickly. That is so smart. It's so interesting too, to think through that whole class of problems, which is like, how do you actually get the best diversity of opinion from your team onto the problem set, right? How do you create an environment where the team is likely to give you real responses and real answers as opposed to what they think you're looking for and sort of the textbook answer to stuff? That is really cool. Is that what it was like for you coming up? Like like when you no. were building the plans at the beginning, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, no, no. Um, do we come from a, like, you got to think of like the history of pleasing special operations you look at, at Princess Gate, uh, you know, the Iranian embassy and, uh, you know, like these, imagine you have like multiple terrorists taking over a huge structure 
with, you know, political sensitivity, making these big, and they create these, you know, military and some countries, police, like in Canada, it was 1986, they created the special emergency response team. And their official mandate was actually to be a lethal force option. When everything else fails, we're going to call these guys. Well, if you have a lethal force only option and you're dealing with a multiple hostage taker, a multiple suspect, multiple hostages who are like politically sensitive, you know, the prime minister's office on the phone calling you every five minutes, like you have to control that group incredibly sure. closely. So what happened is over the last, you know, the next 40 years is that really rigid command and control sort of trickled down. Well, it's absolutely applicable in that context, but we're not a lethal force option. We definitely prefer not to be. Like in, in our view, it's a failure if it goes that way. It's a fa- sometimes there's just no other option, but sure. we view it as a failure. Like we're unable to create a tactical advantage to resolve that in a less lethal or non-lethal means. Mm. Sometimes that's not our, our fault, but we take it as a sure. And when you're dealing with a domestic hostage taking at a, at a bank or in a house, it's not the same incident. So if you exercise that same rigid command and control, you lose a lot of ability of your team to respond to what they're seeing on the ground. And so that's where that comes from. So, you know, when I joined, it was still very much under that original command and control, you know, from the old school ways when they first started these programs, the command had not practiced, had not updated with the spectrum of capability that the team had grown to have. I don't know if that makes sense. Maybe that's a little too, yeah. uh, too in the weeds. No, I don't know. No, absolutely. Because it, you really, you're seeing two different waves sort of crash together on that, right? One is the the like from above wave of like, are we doing command and control or are we pushing decisions to the point of the spear and helping people make the right decisions? But then also like the other thing that happens in that is the identities of these people that are going through that process, right? Because if you see yourself as somebody in a rigid hierarchy in a command and control versus if you see yourself as a distributed decision maker, who's part of your job is to make good decisions all the time. Those are subtly different things in there, right? And like the way you have to think about yourself, the way you have to think about the people around you are, are really different. I have a theory about this. Yeah. So my theory is, I was thinking about this when, you know, we did a debrief on Uvalde, when Uvalde first happened, um, like the definition of tragedy. Yeah. It's like most policing, and I would say most jobs are individual effort. You know, if I pull someone over for a traffic ticket, I'm just, I'm just me. If you don't send me to a break and enter call, I'm just me. You know, I'd, I guess I have a boss, but they're really not overseeing my work. If I do something a little more complex, like maybe a, a bad car crash, well, now it's like five officers. Well, it's no longer individual effort, but you would think that, you know, it's going to be command and control, but it's not. It's a cooperative effort. It's like, I'm going to show up. I'm going to deal with, you know, one car. You're going to show up. You're going to deal with the witnesses. Someone else is going to show up. They're going to deal with this. You know, we're going to just kind of look around and see what task needs to be done. Prioritize. We don't need a conversation. We just can, we can just cooperate. As the complexity increases, cooperation no longer works. There's too many tasks to take care of. It's impossible to prioritize those tasks. We can't manage our resources. That's when we need to go to command and control. And it's like, if you exercise the wrong tool in the wrong situation, so if I exercise command and control in an individual effort, then you need to go pull that guy over. It's like, ah, you're not going to want to work for me. You know, if I try to incorporate, it's like, oh, that guy's he's always beacon at us, always telling us what to do. We know what to do. Like, just let us do our jobs. Sure. Or worse, if I was like, I don't take command, which is what happened yeah. in Uvalde. No one took command. It was still a cooperative effort, but that didn't solve the problem. So if you misalign where you're at with, you know, in that spectrum of cooperation to command and control, I think you're in trouble. And that's what the problem we were having is we were exercising really mm. stringent command and control. But we needed to be just a little more towards the cooperative angle. 
goal. And I don't think there's like a clear bright line between the two. Sure. It's, it sort of melts. But um, I, I think if you misplace your strategy, you can really derail your team pretty quick. I'd imagine there's another wrinkle in there, which is, does everybody agree on where the situation is? Right. If some of the folks Excellent. are like, no, no, this yes. is pretty simple. I'm going to operate by myself. And some other folks who have a different angle on the problem set are like, actually, this is really complicated. We need to temporarily build up a command and control architecture around this. Like, you know, you get this internal friction about this. We see that in medicine all the time where some folks realize it's a crisis and you need a command and control structure to deal with it. And some folks are like, haven't really clicked in that it's crisis yet and are still in like, subtle diagnostics mode about stuff that spin up. And then the other side of that, the spin back down, I think is a pretty crucial step of that. Well, I think competence of the team impacts it too, because a competent team can handle something cooperatively that a less experienced team sure. might need more command and control on. So I think you have to modulate for that as well. Yeah. I just keep coming back to the, you know, like the scenario that we deal with a lot, thankfully not all the time is, you know, a code blue event. So somewhere in the hospital, somebody has their heart stops somebody who's closest hits the button on the wall, code blue, and you have a swarm team that assembles and descends on the patient. So these folks have never met each other most of the time, and they have to self-assemble into a functional team that solves this problem and then gets the, you know, gets the person's heart started again and then goes back to their normal jobs. You know, It's sort of a different instance of what you're describing because if you have the experience, like Kevin, if you and I have worked together before, we can float that cooperative stuff a little bit farther because I, I know- yes. What you're like, I know to trust you. I know when you do this. I know if you start speaking in a certain way, it's because you see something I don't. Like, I have all these cues about working with you, the connective tissue of the team, for lack of a better word. In situations where that's not there, it's so much more challenging to sort of like figure out when to throw these switches, which is why often we default in that circumstance to a command and control architecture at the beginning, which is, you know, you train the doctors to come in the room and be like, who's in charge? Nobody says anything, which is usually what happens. Like, okay, I'm in charge. This is what I want. Right. And you just take command. There's pluses and minuses to that. Like you said, there's two, like, you know, a screwdriver and a wrench are different tools. You use them for different things. Knowing which one you're doing is pretty important. You said something that is just a huge red flag for me when I see it. And you said, you know, if you and I, if I hear something in your voice, it means you're seeing something I'm not. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's a way I try and diagnose that. Cause I think that's a huge thing. If, if you and I are on the same problem set and, you know, like let's say we're, we've been working together for five years. If we're looking at the exact same problem set, what are the chances that what we want to do is diametrically opposed to each other? Because 0%, like the overlap in our likely solution is probably going to be around 98%. I just give you a story. So a couple of years ago, I was on call over Christmas and Christmas day, we get a barricade call. So what happens to a kid with a you know, poor 15 year old kid, mental health issues, didn't like how much mashed potatoes he got for Christmas dinner flipped the table, stabbed his mom, ran upstairs, barricaded into his room. So we go there. That's a pretty simple call, right? What we're trying to do is we don't want to have a close interaction with him. We want to actually prevent an interaction until we can negotiate out. That didn't work. So then we actually just popped a little CS gas, a little tear gas in his room. He came out no problem. And we had created a tactical advantage that rendered his knife threat irrelevant. Perfect, right? In custody, high fives. Oh, you know, everyone saved zero injuries. Great. The next day, the team that had been on that call rotated off. Next day, boxing day, new team is on. I'm still the commander. We get what sounds like the same call. Kid, mental health issue, assaults his mom, barricades in his room, you know, serious assault. I think they might, he might have had a gun. So it's just a little different. Sure. I kind of like, hey, 
no problem. We just did this yesterday. Let's crack this out. We go to the call and the whole call, me and my team leader are just at loggerheads. Man, I just want you to stealth up to the door. I want you to you know, do this, do this. He's like, no, I want to gas the whole house out. Da, da, da. And I was really frustrated with him. And eventually I just said, no, we're doing what I want. Later, I found out the situation was not as identical as I thought it was. Mm. And there was bits of information that I had been missing. And there's bits of information that I had failed to pass on to him. Mm. So the lesson that I learned from that is like anytime, like this is a guy I've worked together with for sure. five years by that time. Like, why do we think there's different, we should do something totally different? It means we're not communicating. It means we're not actually looking at the same problem. So anytime someone says something that's like, yeah. he sees something that I, like, it's like, how do you find out he sees something you don't? Like, he's not going to say, oh, you didn't notice this. And I did like, cause you don't know. Yeah. It's going to manifest in a different way. And it's usually, I find it friction, frustration, you know, conflict. It's just, you see something different. So anytime there's conflict, like we shouldn't be arguing about this because we know how to handle these things. There's a problem here. Anyway, I, yeah. th- 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 that That's was a awesome. big learning experience because I put my team in jeopardy asking mm-hmm. them to do something that they, sh- that they knew they shouldn't have been doing and they pushed back and I didn't listen. And yeah. it's because we weren't looking at the same problem. It's, but that, but it just feels like you are. Right? It oh, feels like you're looking at the same problem. It just feels like this other person is just like not getting it. And like, it just doesn't get it. Yeah. Now, look, there could be a training problem there, right? There could be an experience issue there. Of course, like, yeah, you can't just, you know, it's not always going to be perfect. But generally, if it's one of your more experienced people, pay yeah. attention. You're <laughs> it's probably something going on. Yeah, totally. I think that what do you see that I don't it is such a crucial thing. And uh, like behind that is admitting that you're imperfect right? As a leader, that you don't see everything, that your view is not the view of God, right? Like your view is a view on a problem set. And like the whole room's view is better than your view collectively. So so you have to sort of like, you know, incorporate all of those views into it. Is that your book where you say, who who would you rather do a test? Is it like to write yourself or or like with with your whole class? Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Dr. Chuck Posner. If you read the book, there's a footnote in there where I apologize to him for my reaction the first time that he told me this drill. And I've told him, I've told him in person about this not too terribly long ago, but he would always say, you know, imagine you have to take a test and the outcome of this test is whether your patient lives or dies, right? So, okay, if you give it to every single person, you're going to have some variability in the scoring and some people might save the patient and some might not. But if you can get everybody in the room to take the same test, you're going to have a better outcome. Right, assuming you can talk to each other and actually communicate in a reasonable way. So the problem set, especially for a leader, especially for a young leader that's just starting out, is how do you get the team to take the same test? How do you get everybody working on the same problem set? And what you said in that story is so freaking crucial because you have to understand that what you're feeling, especially in a high stakes, high threat environment, like just might not be real sometimes. And instead, the reality is you might not have a different opinion. You might have a different vantage point than everybody else. So you just sort of go out of your head and like allow the possibility that you're mistaken to arise and therefore get the room working on the same problem. I'm curious if you do this too. One of the ways that we handle that is by purposefully asking negatively phrased questions. Like instead of being like, okay, here's a plan. Everybody good? Thumbs up, right? Which creates this like natural desire for everybody to put their thumbs up and just get on with it. Instead, actively asking, I, I need to know who sees a problem with this plan. What do you see that I don't? And go around the room being like, what do you see that's wrong? What do you see that's wrong? And they can say nothing. That's fine. But I'm inviting them to dissent with the plan on purpose because it, it, create, it sort of flattens the power dynamic a little bit. 
Yeah, that is it. The Appleine paradox is that what it is? You know, where everyone agrees to something even though no one actually wants to do it. Did you ever hear yeah. about that one? I haven't heard it called that. That's an interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's like I forget who wrote it. It was like the whole family's like a hot day. It was like back in the '60s, and uh, they decided they're going to go to on a road trip to Abilene, Texas. And I'm probably saying it wrong. No, no, um, yeah. And then it turns out at the end of the day, after the trip, that no one actually wanted to go, but everyone just agreed to it because they thought everyone else wanted to. I sure. think that that sort of false consensus is so, it's it's so dangerous. It's like mm-hmm. so it's so dangerous. No one wants to go. What we do is we don't frame it that way. I might have to adopt that. I kind of like that. But what we do is we do pre-mortems, you know, sure. which is like, you know, hey, if if one of us gets shot on this call, what's the most likely way that that is going to have happened? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's a little easier to, it's a little easier to frame that than like, well, how could this go wrong? Because the answer is like, ah, it's going to be fine. You're not, <laughs> you're not, you're not going to answer that question. You're going to gloss over it. It's too murky. I think we do a, a, a similar version of that, you know, in terms of like, okay, hey, we're about to intubate this person, which is one of the, one of the more high risk things we do, right? We're going to deliver anesthesia, take their airway, put them on a vent. And that's a bit of a liminal space in the sense that once you paralyze them, you can in some ways get through it, but you basically have to take their airway one, or, one way or the other. So, okay, how are we going to fail at this? Where's the risk, right? And you're asking folks to think around the corner a little bit and be like, well, I think the risk is actually the mechanics of getting the tube in, or I think that's going to go fine, but the risk is the physiology. I think the person's going to crash five minutes after, right? So you're putting your heads together and being like, what do we need to prepare for for this? And where do we think it's going to go wrong? That sometimes solves a slightly different problem than we often do. A, we always do a timeout ahead of doing a procedure like that, right? Just a real quick break pause. What we do in timeout came from a lot of the work around hospital errors. And so traditionally is taught as like, right patient, right procedure, right side of the patient. All of those are very important, unless you only have one of it, in which case it's relevant. But you know, that's like sort of like a, a bare minimum of it, right? For us, we tend to use that also as a, a brake pump, like where is this going to break? Where is this going to fail? And some of that is, you know, the overarching thing you're describing is the problem going to be at the beginning, the middle or the end? Is it going to be after we do it? Is it going to be physiology? Is it going to be anatomy? Is it going to be mechanics? Whatever. The types of answers we get to those questions tend to be buckets. Like, I think their blood pressure is going to drop five minutes after. Okay, cool. We're going to set up a plan for that. The types of answers I get to the who sees a problem right now are like, you know, the IV in the left arm isn't working as much as I think it should. Even as I'm saying this, I'm struggling to explain why those are different things, but those are actually different views on the problem set, right? One is a theoretical sort of like, where is this issue going to happen? And one is a really almost microscopic tactical, like really you can't get the drugs in the way you think you're going to get the drugs. The answers are not overlapping. The questions are not overlapping. Yo, I don't know what the punchline of this sentence is. What do you think about this? (laughs) You said something that made me think of something kind of go, I, my brain went off tangent on, I call them decision gates, which is, you know, cause you said, if you put someone to sleep, you have to do something with their airway. Mm-hmm. And it made me think about how there's some decisions, and I call them decisions gates, where it doesn't matter how sure you are, how much uncertainty is associated with it. If you decide to do it, you're all in, but like you're all in and you sure. can't go back. And, um, some patrol officers saw a guy acting a little suspicious. So they're going to roll up on him and he sees them coming and he books it, right? So he books it on actually onto like a, a subway station. As he's out of sight, he takes off a sweater, which is actually a really astute move because he just looks a little bit different. It's just enough to give him a little mm-hmm. tactical advantage, right? 
The subway's not there. So he's hiding behind someone on this subway platform, crowded platform. The police obviously identify him. They go to talk to him. They say, hey man, he turns around, shoots the, other, the police officer numerous times in the chest. Mm. Uh, he's, he's okay, good. And then he flees, bad guy flees, firing over his shoulders. He goes like crazy. Turns out he was actually a parolee and I had actually put him in jail, uh, helped put him in jail for another uh, homicide that he was involved with years ago. Wow. Drug deal gone bad. So I actually knew the guy. But anyway, uh, at that time, we, yeah. we don't know who he is. It's just some guy who shot a police officer and he took off that way. So the area floods with police cars. We show up because it's a high-risk call. Sure. And it's actually close to our office. So we're there pretty quick. And the witnesses are like, he went that way, he went that way. The dog track is like going that way. And what do you know? The witness said, he ran into that house. We look at that house and one of the patrol guys, I know that house. That's a drug house. So like, okay, we're looking pretty good. So we lock this house down. So we lock the house down and, uh, you know, get on a loud hill. You know, everyone, anyone in the house, come out with your hands up. Someone comes out and they say, uh, well, there's no one else inside. Well, two more people squirt out the back and try to run away. They're not the bad guy, but we're like, okay, so we've got a drug house. We've got people lying to us, et cetera, et cetera. We're feeling pretty confident with this. So we need to find the guy in the house. What we want to do is, you know, we don't want to stick our heads in the house, right? Sure. We want to use drones. We want to use robots. You know, that's the kind of thing we do. It's a rooming house. There's lots of closed doors. People lock their doors. We can't get into all the rooms. There's like junk on the floor. Our robots get hung up on stuff. So we're having trouble clearing the house. Meanwhile, the witness testimony starts eroding a little bit. It's like, oh, kind of different clothing. Yeah. The dog track ends and goes somewhere else. And we try, so it's starting to look like our, our certainty of like, he's in this house, is eroding. I am no longer sure he is in that house or not. So I've got two options. Well, I've got three options. We can pack up and go home. Sure. I could send my officers in to search the house, like, you know, with, with a dog. High chance if he's in there, we're going to be in a confrontation. He already shot a police officer. What do you think he's going to do? He's going to shoot us out, right? He's going to be a shootout. And, and that's not a situation we'd like to be in. Or we could use some tear gas and fully tear gas the house. Problem is that causes a lot of damage, right? So it's kind of like the tendency we have, I feel, is we decide to do something, but we feel uncertain about it. And so what we do to assuage that uncertainty is we attenuate the aggressiveness of our action and we start doing things by half measure. Mm -hmm. So the half measure in this case would be, well, let's, let's go in and search it. We don't think he's in there. Let's just go in there and search it. But I'm putting my officers at risk, right? I kind of, when I was sitting out this call, I'm like, wow. okay, I'm certain enough that we can't pack up and go home. Uh -huh. I have the illegal authority to go in there. It's reasonable suspicion at that point. I, I suspect he's in there like, yeah, it's not 100%, but when is everything 100%? Sure. So it doesn't matter if I, you know, let's say my decision had to be 50% sure he's in there. If I'm 51% sure, I have to act the exact same as if I'm 100% sure because yeah. it's a decision gate. It's a one-way thing. It's like, I, if I'm going to walk into that room, I better act like I belong in there. And I find just that, you know, that half measures is so dangerous because it's like, as a decision maker, we feel like we're hedging our bets, but we're actually making everything worse because we're getting engaged in it. But then we're also not doing something that we think is going to be effective. Yeah. And sorry, like, I, I, so sometimes I think in terms of decision gates. And when, as soon sure. as you said that, you know, like, oh, when you put a guy to sleep, I was like, sounds like a decision gate, right? Like, it doesn't matter mm -hmm. how uncertain you were. That was the right thing to do. You passed your threshold of certainty required. You need to go and do it. And, and yeah. you just, with all the aggressiveness, if you're 100% sure. The, the analogy yeah. I use is like, imagine you're going to ask out a girl, right? 
It's like, if you're 100% sure she's going to say yes, well, that's not even a decision. That's a, I call it, there's a difference between decisions and processes, right? Sure. Processes are 100% decisions like, oh, there's uncertainty here. But it's like, if you're 70% sure she's going to go out with you, she's going to say yes, you better not act like kind of, you know, timid and it, it doesn't help you any, right? It doesn't help you hmm. to do by half measures. You have to proceed as if your success is, is guaranteed. So yeah. I don't know if that hits anything, but um, no, that's it, something it, I think of. That absolutely does. And, and it's interesting because you flip that around a little bit, right? So what are the types of decisions that require that logic to solve them? Or to what are the types of problem sets that require that logic to solve them? Because not everything works like that, right? No. A, a right. lot of times in life, you actually can hedge your decisions. Yes. Right. You can, you know, if you're uh, investing or starting a company or doing whatever, you can hedge your decisions a lot in that kind of world. There are a lot of things you can do in medicine where you can hedge your decisions too, right? Not everything is a decision that really has that same architecture to it. Now you have a couple stack problems, which is what are the decisions that actually require that kind of an action plan? How do you identify them as rapidly as possible? And then when you identify them, how do you execute on them? Those are you know, a couple of pieces in there. And we can take that any way that you want. But to me, this gets into what we started thinking about initially, which is this asymmetric downside risk environment, right? So what defines the environment that we're operating in? And even within these environments, not every decision has this characteristic, I don't know what you really call it, go, not go, or you know, forced binary, whatever we're going to call this decision process, right? Like not everything has that, but I'm willing to bet they occur a lot more in these asymmetric downside risk environments than they do in something that's just even. I think you're right. I think if you were to quantify it, it would have something to do with how much uncertainty there is, um, how much asymmetric downside risk there is, how many uncontrolled variables there are, uh, it would probably be some combination of those factors that would tumble out. And I, yeah, I, I've never thought to try and quantify which decisions are like that. I know them when I see them. Mm -hmm. And and I, to go back to your early question, like one of the things I try to do is I ask myself, how can I make this problem boring? Right? Like people think, oh, SWAT team, like sure. adrenaline junkies. Yeah. Like I don't want adrenaline junkies. I want people who are just really methodical. So if I can make something boring, then that means I'm removing the asymmetric downside risk, possibly, totally. or I'm controlling more of the variables, or I'm you know just eliminating or, or, or getting more complete information. I'm making it boring. That's my job is to make it boring. Totally. And if you don't, and so, but sometimes you can't. Like there's no boring yeah. way to do a hostage rescue. There's just not. It's there's not. Yeah, you're shrinking the problem set. Whenever we have these sort of like reusable principles, right? Like. If you don't know what to do, shrink the problem set and gain options on methods of control, right? Put IVs into the patient so you can deliver drugs. Deliver, like have drugs that make the heart go faster and the heart go slower. Gain options for dials to turn and make the problem set more simple by eliminating things. And if you can do both of those things, then you're going to be in a better spot than you are when you started, even if you're not solving the problem. It's not quite making it more boring, but it steps towards boredom, I guess I'd call it. And that steps in that logic. I, so it's funny, we do the same thing. So it's like, you know, if a guy has a whole house, how can I shrink him to one room? You know, if, you know, there's other people in the house, how can I get them out? Yep. You know, how can I get, you know, preposition some equipment so that we can use it if we need it? It's, it's yeah. the exact same principle. It's the exact same principle. Now, what differentiates creating those, uh, what you call gaining options? Is that, is that the terminology you chose? How do you know when you're working to gain options versus delaying making decision and delaying taking the, the 
the big step that you might need to take that you're maybe not sure of. Because here's what I think is that it's like action versus inaction is not apples to apples, right? True. Inaction is always more attractive. It, you know, there's in, in policing, it's like it's viewed as less blameworthy. If I don't do anything, well, my fingerprints aren't on it. That problem was already there when I showed up and, you know, we, we didn't touch anything yet kind of thing. And it's like, people don't want to believe that because inaction doesn't feel like inaction. It's like, oh no, we're collecting information and oh, we're planning and oh, we're, we're, you know, gaining options. It's like, yeah, but you actually didn't do anything to solve the Mm -hmm. problem. How can you tell the difference? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. One of the things that we use on that is forced hierarchies. Let's say you're going to do a thing like you're going to intubate the person and you're delaying deciding, are you going to intubate the person or not? In order to intubate them safely, you need to have an IV in them. So when I gain options, I'm going to put that IV in. This is particularly cognizant or, or um, relevant when you're treating a child, right? So most of the time, you don't automatically put an IV in a kid. It hurts them. It scares them. It makes them breathe faster. All of those are things you might want to avoid. So the default action for a child is no IV unless there's a reason for an IV. All right. But if you're going to intubate them, you have to have an IV in them. So gaining options is looking at that kid and being like, you know, I don't know if that kid's going to need an airway or not. I'm going to put an IV in right now. I'm committing myself to partway down that pathway. It's going to make my decision easier next time, right? There's hierarchies sometimes that happen in there. There's also sort of embedded in that is this idea of intelligent defaults, right? So if you're an adult and you show up in the ER and you're not looking good, you're going to get an IV. I don't care if it hurts you. I, I am just, I just don't care right? I want options over no options. So I'm going to put an IV in, especially at the beginning. Now I might take it out later or something like that. If you come in for a sprained ankle or a sore throat, you're probably not going to get an IV, right? Certainly not saying everybody needs an IV. But if you show up in the resuscitation bay and you're not looking good, my team is trained to put IVs in as much as possible, right? To increase the ability to do further actions. That's not a delaying tactic. That's setting the stage for further actions. What gets complicated is there's this trap you get into where, okay, let's say somebody has really bad asthma. They're not breathing well. You're worried about it. There's risk to intubating them. There's risk to not intubating them. Sometimes you might be like, well, let's just try BiPAP, right? This machine that sort of helps them force a little bit of air in. Are you doing that because you're not really committing to intubate them? Or are you doing that because you you really think it might make a difference and you're trying to optimize them for your next setup? And I think asking that question out loud is an important piece of what you're describing. Why am I doing this? So one of my favorite questions is if someone asks me something, hey, you know, Kevin, can we go to gas on this? Hey, can we put the robot in? If I answer no, my next question to myself has to be, what would make me say yes? Mm -hmm. And if I can't answer that question, it means my no was not an actual real no. I didn't actually make a decision. I delayed a decision. But in my mind, I tricked myself into thinking I was, oh, I'm a decisive guy. I said no to that. It's like, well, what make you say yes? Well, I don't know. Then my no yeah. was meaningless. I mean, I don't know my own decision criteria. And it's worth saying that sometimes that's actually okay and the right thing to do. It is okay. Right? Like, yeah. like holding is important, right? You want to gather information sometimes. There's a right and a wrong way for this. I always think about it, you know, like oil wildcatting, right? So, okay, you're going to drill for oil. Every time you drill a, a test well, it costs you time and money. Right. So you have to drill, if you have a field, enough test wells and learn enough about what you think the shape of the oil reserve is underneath it to figure out where to sink your real well. Every new test well costs time and money. How much time and money are you willing to spend to get a better solution to the problem? 
Well, it depends on the underlying oil and it depends on the amount of time and money you have to begin with. There are some problems where I'm willing to take a lot of half actions in order to get a lot of information before I make a decision. There's some problems where you, no, you just got to go. I don't, I, you know, like you said, fifty-one percent is a hundred percent. Go. Telling the difference between those problems is really important, and that's something I'm certainly better at now that I'm more experienced than I was when I was just starting out. And some of those wells, the cost of drilling the test pilot holes is is very low. Sometimes it's very high because you just don't have time or exactly whatever. So I always look at that's a big question. It's like. How much information do I need before I make a decision? Mm-hmm. And the way I like mm-hmm. to frame it is I don't ask how much information I need. I ask what information I need, what piece right. of information. And I look at for what I call critical factors. Sure. And I define a critical factor as some piece of information that is just so dominant that everything else is irrelevant. So I'll give you an example. What tends to happen is, you know, let's say my phone rings tonight at two in the morning. And they say, hey, you know, this guy and his wife, they're having a domestic and, uh, you know, he had a gun, he pointed at her and, you know, the neighbor called in, he's, he, he won't come out, he's got her at gunpoint, and he's yelling at her, right? Hostage situation. My tendency is to be like, okay, hostage problem, how do I solve that big problem? All right, mm-hmm. I need to ask you who these people are, what the address is, you know, what precipitate the event, what their background is. I'm going to ask like 15 minutes worth of questions. Then I'm going to say, okay, what's my first step? Deploy the team. So I'll call my team leader and say, hey, we're all to this address. Okay. If my phone rings and they say, we have a hostage taking, is anything else he gonna, that that person's going to say going to change my first decision? Right. It's not. So right. that's a critical. So I break the big problem down into little problems. And then I look for the critical factor that will let me answer each little problem as quick as possible. And then I move on to the next one. Now I've got an optimization problem. It's like, yeah. how many little problems do I create? And which ones have the easiest to find critical factors? That's why I think like- Yeah, man. You're like the 40-70 rule. It's like, you know, once you have 40 to 70% of information, you, 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 know, you'll, you, know, you should make a decision. It's like, no, no, no. That's useful because by then you usually have all the critical factors because the, yeah. every piece of information points you to one or is a result of one. So you can vector in pretty quickly. Sure. But you're really, you make your decision probably off, you know, off those 70 test holes. Maybe off of two. Two, those are your critical factors. Sure. So how can you find those as quick as yep. possible? That's my challenge. How do you identify what they are for a decision? And then how do you go get them as soon as possible and operate along the that model while you're gathering more information and doing other stuff? Totally. That's right. And surging resources, doing all these concurrent activities, gaining options, right? How gaining you, options, you know, right? Yeah. This um, uh, gentleman from the EOD space said it as using seconds to buy minutes, right? Perfect. How do you spend yeah. seconds to buy minutes? The obvious parallel for me is uh, anaphylaxis, terrible allergic reaction, right? Somebody comes in, they've got a terrible allergic reaction. The junior med student, junior doctor always goes, what'd you eat? Dude, who cares? I don't care. I don't (laughs) care. What I want is open your mouth. I want to look inside and see if it's swollen or not. That's it. That's it. I don't care. Like Then if if you survive long enough, maybe I'll ask you out of curiosity what you ate. So you don't eat it next time. So you don't eat it next time. Yeah, exactly. It's irrelevant. But the yeah. tendency is, one thing I loved in your book, mm. I've, I loved it. I wrote it down. I've said it in public three different talks. I said, your job is not to resolve uncertainty. Your job is to navigate uncertainty. But yeah. people, they want decisions to feel comfortable mm-hmm. because they're used, you know, that's what they're taught. Well, you weigh all your pros and cons mm-hmm. and, you mm-hmm. know, you, you look at all your options, you test this and you mitigate that and you should feel comfortable. It's like, I don't think I've ever made a comfortable decision in my life professional life. Like they all, I think they're right, but that doesn't mean they're comfortable. They're uncomfortable. 
but people engage in all sorts of activities to try to resolve the uncertainty because they want to feel comfortable. You're in the wrong line of work, in, in my opinion. Like, you learn to live with it. It sucks. You want to collect information, but that's available. Absolutely. You want to make informed decisions. But if you're looking for comfort, you're probably not going to find it or, or, mm-hmm. or you're going to find it so late that the, the train's left the station already. I was just talking with some of my residents about this. You know, you look at the data for surgical front and neck access, like a, a crike, right? If you look at the data and how ER doctors screw this up, it tends to be that they do it too late. They don't do it quickly enough. And if you really drill into it, it's once they start, they're quite fast at it, but it's literally the decision to go that's a real challenge for us. We're used to troubleshooting an airway. We're used to going to backup plan. We're not used to pivoting to this because it carries consequences and risk. And you know, it's a it's a it's a big decision as opposed to a small decision. And maybe that's another category we can talk about at some point. But the corollary of that though is that most of the time, in fact, probably all the time, you have to pull the trigger before you feel you're ready. If you read the data and you understand that and you believe that, then every time you do it, it's going to feel like you're doing it too soon. That's kind of crazy. But if you actually, if you sit with that for a second, you're like, oh shit, all right, I have to prepare to make a decision that feels like it's too soon. Because if I wait till it feels like it's right, I'm going to be late. Like We're talking about this as experienced operators in our own fields who have made these decisions and who have a backlog of decisions that we've made. Like You and I can reflect on our own history and be like, yeah, I remember what that felt like when I made that decision. I remember what that felt like and what happened. And I have this database. Part of the problem set is, how do you train the next generation of folks coming up so that they don't have to learn expensively like that, right? So that they can learn cheaply without having to create this backlog. How do you train somebody to make a decision before it feels comfortable? We run our uh, critical incident commander course in uh, the Canadian Police College, run it a few times a year. And when we teach on that, uh, the final test is a big scenario. And it's usually like a hostage taking or, you know, active shooter, something very, very difficult. And uh, what they're taught is you're the commander and you've got your, your SWAT guy and you've got your negotiator and you've got your, and we have a scribe person writing everything on the board. And we've got a set way of writing. It's called SMEAC, Situation, Mission, Execution, Administration, Command and Control. It's like little, it's like, hey, this is how you control your chaos sort of thing. Sure. And you give them a decision point and they all do the same thing, usually at the start of the course. So they'll go, yeah, like a really hard decision. And they'll go, mm. and they'll look at the board. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> The answer's not on there. <laughs> if the yeah. answer was there, that would be, you know, I would just replace you with a spreadsheet and sure. you would just plug this stuff in and, you know, I'd create a formula and it'd tumble out. That's a process, right? There's, there's like, that, that's just a process. There's no decision to it. It's like a decision almost by definition requires, you know, by my definition, requires uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And I think it's when you, like, you have to define what uncertainty you're used to or you're comfortable with if you don't know what uncertainty you're comfortable with, that's when you get into indecision, right? It's like, let's say, sure, I want to be 70% sure before I do this thing. Well, that means I have 30% uncertainty. That's a given in our line of work, right? We, nothing's going to be 100%. But if I don't know what my decision point is, it's 70% or is it 80%? And then, well, what are my facts? Are my facts at like 60%? Do they meet the, may they meet my, th- so if I don't know my threshold and I don't know if I've met my threshold, now I'm in indecision. And I think when you conflate those two, uncertainty yeah. and indecision, now you've got, you're just, you're vapor locked. You're not going anywhere. Yeah. I don't know how to train that other than to have these conversations and explain to people like, no, like, yeah, I don't feel comfortable making these decisions. Like, I know they're right, but it doesn't feel good. It's sure. hard. It's, it's emotionally draining. It's hard. 
And beyond explaining that, and everyone I've talked to, they say the same thing. Like these are experienced decision makers. Like, no, you don't wait until it feels easy because sure. that's probably wrong. That's the wrong signal. Yeah, that's the wrong signal. I think your idea of like, training yourself to look for and identify the critical pieces of information, not a body of information is really important, right? For some of these things where you have to be where you know 51 equals 100, right? Mm-hmm. Being real clear on what those things are and training those a little bit differently than the other ones. I think this is an interesting bridge into like the client Kahneman decision about where can you develop expertise, like the conditions for developing expertise. What types of problems are we working that you actually can uh, like a priori ahead of time identify the critical factors for? Because certainly not everything, but there's a lot of them that we probably could be doing. I like one of the tools we use because I find it's very hard to establish priorities during an event. Like it's almost sure. impossible. Like everything feels important. So we have a, we call it the safety priorities. So for, in our world, the number one priority is the hostage. The number two priority is the public. The number three is the police. And the number four is the suspect. And people say, well, wow, is the suspect's life worth less than the police? It's like, no, absolutely not. What we do though is that's the inverse relationship of how much control each person has yeah. over that situation. Totally. The suspect could end the situation just by complying and walking out. You know, the police, yeah. you know, we can be behind cover. We can somewhat choose our position. The hostage, they have no control and they are the yeah. most, the, the most egregious risk of, of, uh, of imminent harm. So, yeah. it, but it's so easy. So like that is drilled into us. And then you get into the situation and you start making decisions that inverse that's those safety priorities, right? They just, and it, and it, and it happens yeah. so easily. It's like, well, you made the decision. Well, it's like, yeah, but I didn't want to get into a confrontation with the suspect. Okay. But whose life did you gamble with? Well, the hostages. All right. Yeah. You inverted the safety priorities. But it's very difficult because it's like, I just want to win without anything going bad. But it's that's like without any cost. It's, it's not going to happen. Do, man. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but like, of course, of course you want that, right? Because like you're a normal, despite all of the training and everything else, you're still a human being underneath it. And like you want things to feel and go a certain way. And I don't think anybody, I don't think you can, I don't know that you can actually train that out of somebody. You can augment it. You can change it. You can alter it. Right. In the same way that, like, when I operate in the emergency department, I don't act human in a lot of ways. I act like something else. I am a different species. But that doesn't mean that goes away entirely. It doesn't mean like you ever really, really stop being human. So I think that's worth those conversations about, like, especially in the debrief, like, why did you make that decision? Where was that coming from? Tell me about the other options you considered and why you tell me about why you picked that one. (laughs) Exactly. Kevin, thank you so much, dude. I I mean, like, I I can't even believe it. That was an hour. I feel like that was like 10 minutes. And there's like depths and depths of more of this. I want to give you a chance as, as we're sort of closing this out here to issue a challenge to folks listening to this. For folks that are listening that are going to run a shift tomorrow, whatever shift that universe is in, what do you want them to try? What do you want them to do differently? You know what I want? I want people to become a student of the game. Hmm. And in policing, that game is you know, making hard decisions being prepared to confront violence. You know, there's there's a lot to it, but it's like, what does it actually mean to be a student of the game? It's like, you have to, if you're in the SWAT team and you have not read about the Melbourne, Australia chocolate uh, cafe hostage taking, or you haven't read about the Iranian embassy, it's like, you're missing out. Like, you need to go read those things. And then if you're not reading about decision-making, so if you're not reading, you know, uh, some Dan and Chip Heath, or you're not reading some comment, or you're not reading, you know, it's emergency mind. Like, you're not prepared for the difficulty that, is awaiting you. 
so many times that we get so lucky. You know what I mean? Like we don't do things right and it works out just fine. And then we actually reward that behavior. You know, we reward risk adverse behavior and we reward not making decisions because nothing bad happened. So it must have been well done. And that's not it at all. And that's, yeah. and, and I think if we were better students of the game in our own industry and then outside of our industry, I think we'd be a little more comfortable with, with the uncomfortable decisions that await us. Super, super cool. Thank you so much for joining for this and for teaching everybody. And, and thank you for what you taught me on this. Oh, I appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. I learned a lot of things and I've, I've been really enjoying your podcast. I've really enjoyed your book. I got us all underlined and dog-eared. So thanks for putting that out in the world because I know it's, 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 it's a lot of work and, uh, and you put it out there and it's, it's resonating. So thank you. Right on. I'll close out by saying, as always, our job here on the Emergency Mind podcast is to think about how to make decisions under pressure, how to apply decisions under pressure, apply knowledge under pressure, and how to perform at our best when we're needed the most. And nothing I or anybody else in this podcast today should be construed as medical advice or representative of the groups that we work for or with. It's just us talking about the universe, hanging out. So Kevin, thank you. All right. Thanks so much.